0: Hello everyone, it is the Neighborhood Hype Girl, and welcome to Episode 7 of By the Order, a podcast where I discuss each episode of the amazing show Peaky Blinders. Whether you're returning or tuning in for the first time, I'm so happy that you're here. Now, it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. everyone welcome to episode seven of by the order i cannot believe that we're already finished with season one of peaky blinders and episode seven is the first episode of season two which is just crazy to me i cannot believe we're already here before we get started, I just really truly want to take a moment and just thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. I really do mean it. I know I said it in the intro, but really, whether you've tuned in one time or you've listened to all the episodes, I am so grateful for you. So many of you have sent me such sweet DMs, you know, saying such nice things about this little podcast, and it truly means so much to me. Um, I hope you're enjoying yourselves. I really do. And your support means everything. Um, I really, I really do mean that. If you are listening and you're taking the time to rate on Spotify or to rate and review on Apple, that really means a lot to me. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that, for tuning in, for sending me DMs. It means the world. This little podcast is very niche and it's very small, but um, y'all are so mighty and it's um, it's just so much fun. I've personally had a really, really um, busy, hectic, very tough week at work. and. Um, I'm sitting in my closet on, on Friday night and I have honestly been looking forward to this moment all week. I just couldn't wait to record this episode and just decompress. I'm so happy this week is over. I'm sure I'm not alone. I know so many of you can relate to that. So if you're listening, thank you for being here with me. It's um. It makes me really happy. It's something that I've been looking forward to and I'm so glad that you're here. So let's get into it. Season 2, Episode 1. Again, I can't believe that we're here so let's just get right to it. When we ended Season 1, it ended with the sound of a gunshot and We weren't sure if that meant that Chief Inspector Campbell had successfully shot Grace like he had intended to or not. Season 2, Episode 1 opens with us revisiting Tommy flipping a coin and seeing Grace shoot Chief Inspector Campbell with her gun through her purse, just like she did when she killed Ryan from the Irish Republican Army. So, here we go. So, in Season 2, Episode 1, we see Grace shoot Campbell through her purse. And it's actually, like, a really cool shot visually. It's really neat. She shoots him, and he falls to the ground. And when he falls, he still has his gun in his hand... That he was planning to shoot Grace with, but she beat him to it first. A, hey, that's my girl. So she shoots him, and then we see Tommy, who had flipped a coin. The coin lands, and we see Tommy slowly take his hand off of that coin. And then we're back to Grace, and she just walks away. And as she walks away, Campbell is on the ground and there is a puddle of blood slowly forming around him. Then we see a title card that says, two years later. So we see these two women that are dressed in all black as if they were in mourning and they're pushing two perambulators also known as prams and a lot of you will know what that means so prams are basically like old school baby carriages um you'll know what i mean if you look it up if you haven't watched the episode it, it, immediately you'll know you'll know what that is so we get an overhead view of this and We see the woman pushing these carriages and it looks like in each carriage there's something wrapped in blankets and so a lot of people are probably thinking oh they're just two women pushing their babies. Yeah they're just out for a walk. Two buddies. So they walk by a canal and the title card tells us that they are in small Heath Birmingham. We see the woman continue walking in they make it to the garrison pub, and they park the prams right in front of the doors of the garrison. The women start walking away from the prams, and then quickly those walks turn into a run. And then the two prams explode. I'm sure a lot of people weren't expecting that, but the first time I watched this, I was like, yeah, no, this is like textbook a way that people do that it's it's very scary so then we go to the next scene and we see a funeral happening and there are people holding flags that say communist party of great britain tommy walks up to the casket and says i promised my friend freddie thorne that i would say a few words over his grave if he should pass before me I made this promise before he came my brother-in-law, when we were in France, fighting for the king. And in the end, it wasn't war that took Freddy. Pestilence took him. But Freddy passed on his soul and his spirit to a new generation, before he was cruelly taken. So in case you didn't know, I actually looked it up to get an exact term, because it's like I knew what pestilence was, but I wanted to define it exactly, you know, how it's defined in the dictionary so it says pestilence is a fatal epidemic disease especially bubonic plague as tommy is speaking we see esme holding a baby and we see her hand the baby to john shelby which shows us that in the past two years she has been pregnant and had a baby we see ta- tommy and ada walking from the crowd at the funeral and he tells her that now with freddie gone the shelby's thought that ada might come back to birmingham ada scoffs she says god do you know how funny it is that you've got chauffeurs in uniform now tommy shakes his head and assures her that it's just for the occasion ada replies Do you know how unfair it is that you've got four Bugattis when half the country's starving? I remember the first time I watched this, and when she said four Bugattis, I was like, look at Tommy coming up. Wow. He deserves it. I don't care what anybody says. He's hustled. He's earned that. Tommy says, so now they've made you ashamed of us, eh? Ada says, sometimes when I think how I used to be, it makes me embarrassed. Polly walks up to them and tells Ada that Carl is with his cousins and that she caught them trying to pinch flowers off of a grave. Polly then asks Ada if she's coming home. Ada replies, I'm going home. Tommy tells Polly that they make Ada embarrassed and Ada says, that's not what I said. Tommy tells Ada that there's another reason they want her home, and the reason is because they're planning an expansion, and that he's taking premises in London. Polly tries to cut Tommy off and says that it's a funeral and that business can wait. Tommy tells her that if Ada was weeping, then he'd stop, but she's not. Tommy tells Ada that the expansion means it's going to be dangerous to be a Shelby in London for a while. Ada replies with, yeah, well, I'm not a Shelby anymore, and I'm not a Thorn now either. I'm free. Ada tells Polly and Tommy that she has to get Carl home and walks away. Polly tells Tommy, I told you, let me deal with it. Tommy brushes her comment off and says, I'll have some men watch her house till the danger passes. Then we see a man pull up on a motorcycle and whisper something into Arthur's ear, Arthur starts walking towards Tommy and motions for Tommy to come closer. Polly just says, till the danger passes. That'll be the bloody day. We see the two chauffeured cars pull up to the destroyed garrison. Polly and Tommy get out of the cars and walk up to the pub that is roped off and being guarded by Sergeant Moss. Moss tells them that it happened at exactly 7 a.m., and that nobody saw anything because their patrols were not in the area. Moss asks Tommy if he has any idea who may have done it. Tommy replies, I'd say it was something to do with the gas, just been fitted. He then pulls some money out of his pocket and discreetly hands it to Sergeant Moss. So, like, Moss definitely takes this money, but there's a certain demeanor about him that makes it seem like he hates himself for taking the money Polly starts walking into the garrison and Moss warns her saying that the structure is not yet declared safe Polly ignores him and bends down to pick something up when she holds it up to take a closer look it looks green she starts walking out of the garrison and says this is all over the place she hands it to Tommy and says confetti Tommy tells Moss that he can go, and Moss immediately knows that he's been dismissed and walks away. Polly then says, who? Who did this to us? We see Tommy enter a pub that's underground. He's walking down the stairs, and there's an Irish flag hanging behind the bar. Tommy walks up to the bar and says, whiskey, Irish. He always orders the Irish whiskey. Love it. The pub is quiet, and the few people that are in there are looking at Tommy. The bartender pours Tommy his drink. Tommy throws a coin down on the bar, and the bartender quickly slides it back to Tommy. He returns serve. He's like, nope, your money's no good here. The bartender says, Heard there was a bit of a bang in your part of town. The bartender looks smug when saying this. Tommy calmly says, Gas and electric don't mix. Who would have thought they would, eh? The bartender asks Tommy how business is otherwise. Tommy says, you know something? And then he turns his whole body around and he raises his voice. And he's facing the other people in the pub and he says, in these times of hunger and hardship, business is surprisingly good. We see a little boy come down the stairs and he says, which one of you is the Peaky Blinder Devil? Tommy knows that this is his cue. He finishes his drink and the scene quickly switches. The camera is following the little boy as he runs and Tommy is walking swiftly after him. He knows he has to keep up with him. In this scene, it's really amazing. The music and motions are perfectly lined up. It's like Tommy's walk is perfectly synchronized and complemented by the music. The little boy is leading Tommy through this maze of tunnels and alleyways and backyards and clothes hanging, drying on the line. We see Tommy enter what looks like what I can best describe as an industrial space. As he walks through an open doorway, there are two men, one waiting on each side of the doorway. They immediately stop Tommy and start undressing him. They take his hat off because they know it has blades in it. They take off his coat, his suit jacket, and remove the guns from his holster and the holster. And they give him back his suit jacket and then they put a bag over his head. As this is happening, I'm not saying that Tommy is, like, smiling, obviously. He's not genuinely happy, right? He's just like, okay. You know, Tommy knows this life. He knows what they're doing. He knows that they're physically disarming him because they're taking him to a second location. So they put this bag over his head and each man, like, grabs each of Tommy's arms and Tommy willingly goes with him. So we're in the bedding room and it's business as usual. We see John on the phone and he's calling Finn into the room and telling him to hold the phone and to take the orders. It's important to note that Finn, who is now portrayed by Harry Curtin, and whenever he, Finn was a little boy, he was portrayed by Alfie Evans Meese. Finn is all grown up now. He is the youngest member of the Shelby clan, but he's finally a teenager. He's not a little boy anymore. We see John walk up to Polly and ask, did he say who did it? Polly said, he's gone to the Black Lion. John says, on his own. And Polly says that Tommy does everything on his own. John asks if he should go to the Black Lion, and Polly says, no. John says, where the F is Arthur? Polly says that Arthur is protecting the garrison's whiskey from the police. As John and Polly are talking, they're walking. Polly walks into a room and John follows her, closing the double doors behind them. He tells her that it feels like things are getting out of hand and Polly doesn't miss a beat and says, so get them in hand. John says, do you know what Ada said to me this morning? Polly doesn't answer and puts a cigarette in her mouth and John continues. John says, she said we all look like we work in a factory under the ground. She said we look like ghosts. Polly takes a puff from her cigarette and just says she'll be back. John asks, when? And Polly says, when she needs us. John asks who the F would blow up their pub. Polly pours herself a drink and says six. John says six what? Polly says six questions since we walked through that door. Soon, you're going to have to start being the man with the answers. John asks why, and Polly says because when London happens, he's going to have to hold up his end or they'll find somebody else who can. So, y'all, this next scene, it is just. I'm. I tr- like. I'm telling you everything that happened, but it is really something to watch. I just. I love this next scene. I don't know if it's because we're so scared. We don't know if Tommy's losing control or what's happening. It is just, I really, really enjoyed the scene. So here we go. We see Tommy sitting and the bag is removed from his head. He's sitting across the table from two people, a man and a woman. The woman says, Thomas Shelby. Tommy calmly tells her, that they blew up his pub. The woman says, anger defeats fear. Good. Tommy just smirks and calmly says again, you blew up my pub. The woman turns to the man sitting to her left and tells him that Tommy has a reputation to uphold. The man says, a reputation for not being scared of anything. The woman says that in all the world, violent men are the easiest to deal with. Tommy is as calm as ever and says, So, tell me, which brand of rebel are you? I read somewhere that you patties started fighting amongst yourselves now. The king offers you a peace treaty and you start a war about it. That's funny, don't you think? A war about peace? So, are you for the treaty or against the treaty? Forgive me. I get confused. The man and woman don't say anything, but the man stands up grabs the gun that's sitting on the table, and goes and stands on Tommy's right side. The woman tells Tommy that he is one decision away from death, and the man says, so stop effing smiling. Tommy doesn't flinch and continues looking at the woman, briefly points to her and says, your name is Irene O'Donnell. You have a son at the Cherry Wood Road School in Harborn. He has iron on his legs. His name is Sean. He comes last in every race. Poor boy. Poor boy if the race is important. You know what I mean, Irene O'Donnell? All right, y'all. So again, this scene is just like, it's incredible to watch. It's really, it's art. I swear to you, the acting. God, Killian Murphy is just incredible. Tommy is letting her know that he knows exactly who she is and that she is not the one that's in control. I'm going to go ahead and say the woman looks shook. She looks pretty horrified as Tommy speaks. And Tommy knows exactly what he's doing by saying this he is letting her know that he knows more than she thinks and he's also kind of threatening her using her son he's letting her know that he knows exactly where her son is and that he can get to him anytime he wants the man cocks the gun holds it up to tommy's head and says there are other ways to carry out this mission please allow me to put a bullet in this scum tinker's head Irene, who is portrayed by Simone Kirby, looks bewildered and says no. He researches his enemies. That's why he's been chosen. Tommy is still looking at her with a slight smirk on his face and a gun to his head. He raises an eyebrow and says I am chosen. Then he turns to the man as he is holding a gun to his head. And I don't mean like holding a gun. I mean like that gun is on his head, and he says, I'm chosen. <laughs> and the way he says it, like, he really does say it low. He says it as though he's impressed, but he also says it, in a, like, mockingly, right? Tommy says, can the chosen one smoke? The man begrudgingly drops the gun, and Tommy pulls out his cigarettes. Irene says that a vacancy has appeared, and that Tommy is going to fill it. Tommy asks who has chosen him, and Irene tells him, "Quote by an informed consensus." Tommy lights his cigarette and tells Irene that, Irene that he has things to do, and suggests that Irene tell the chosen one what he has been chosen for. Irene says, "From now on, Mister Shelby, you shut your effing Romany mouth and listen to your instructions." And the next scene, we see Tommy back in the place that the little boy initially led him. And we see a butchered pig hanging upside down. And on the two hooks next to that, we see Tommy's gun holster and his coat. Tommy walks up, removes his suit jacket, puts his holster back on, puts his jacket back on. And then he tries to put his coat back on and he's having a little trouble doing that, but he gets so frustrated and flings the coat on the ground, like tries to put it on the ground and gets caught on a on a butcher hook and he screams the f-word. We can tell that he's not frustrated about not being able to put his coat back on. He's obviously mad about the mission that Irene O'Donnell has told him he's going to carry out. He's not mad about the coat. He's mad about that. It's never about what it's really about. The music rises and Tommy knocks over some crates out of anger and you can tell that he has lost control of the situation and he no longer has the upper hand. He calms down, straightens his guns that have come loose in his holster and he walks up to the coat that's hanging on the butcher hook and puts it back on and he puts on his hat. And he's like slowly adjusting his hat on his head, just trying to gather himself. We see Tommy walk through a double set of doors in the next scene. And the words are etched with the words, Shelby Company Limited. As this scene starts, the song Down by the Water by PJ Harvey is playing. The music is menacing. It's dramatic. And it goes with this scene beautifully. So, this scene shows us some of the framed pictures that are in Tommy's office. And Tommy's office is honestly beautiful. It has the finest furniture, it's decorated, it has, you know, like a mini bar, (laughs) tons of alcohol. And he even has a telephone on his desk, which is funny because when Grace first installed a telephone in the garrison, Tommy was so unimpressed. The way that his office is decorated is a huge indication of just how successful Tommy is and how much has happened since we last saw him two years ago. Tommy sits behind his desk with his lit cigarette and he just thinks. We see him pick up his phone and then we switch scenes. We see Tommy standing in an alleyway where the Shelby family car is parked. Sergeant Moss, who is dressed in plain clothes and looking very dapper, if I do say so myself, he's dressed in plain clothes and he walks up to Tommy. Tommy tells Moss that he needs the area around the cooperative stables clear of coppers between midnight and four o'clock that night. Moss says, right. Can I ask why? Tommy doesn't answer, but he does a signature move and he pulls money out of his pocket and starts counting it. Moss says, well, whatever it is you're going to do, don't start any fires. The firemen go out on strike at midnight. Tommy hands Moss the money and says, that's all. You can go. Dang, that's like two times already that Moss has been dismissed by Tommy. Hmm. That's fun. Moss tells Tommy that he has some information that Tommy might be interested in and that he'll tell him at no charge. Moss tells him that an old friend of theirs is coming back to the city and that their quote-unquote friend says he's just passing through. Moss says, very grand these days. He's head of some secret department, the Irish desk, so I doubt he'll be bothering with the likes of us, eh? Tommy has a look of confusion on his face, and Sergeant Moss bids him goodnight and walks off. And the next scene, we see a man walking, and we can deduce by the sounds and just the surroundings that the man is walking through a prison. At this point, all we can see in the shot is the man walking, and all we can see are his legs, and the man is walking using the assistance of a cane on his right side. He walks with a wolf head cane. The man is walking with a limp. We see a man that is talking to another man that is being physically restrained by two officers. The man is telling the condemned man that he must reconcile himself with the fate that awaits. The man that's being restrained is demanding to speak with a representative of the king. And the other man tells him to make his peace with God. The man being restrained is hysterical and is obviously terrified. It's actually really sad to watch. He seems desperate. The man insists he's working for a man with a wolf head cane. The other man walks out of the cell and locks the door behind him. As he locks this door, he gets out, you know, he locks the door. He looks Kind of disturbed. And we see Campbell walk down the stairs as the man is locking the door to the cell. Campbell says, Does someone here have business with the king? The man says, Major Campbell, about time. So this tells us that Campbell has been promoted since we last saw him. When we last saw him, he was Chief Inspector Campbell. Campbell says, I am a very busy man, governor. The governor tells him that in seven and a half minutes, the man in that cell is due to be hanged for murder. The murder of a, of an Irish activist in Whitechapel. Does the case ring any bells, Major Campbell? You can tell that by the way, the governor is asking that question that he knows that Campbell had everything to do with it campbell answers in a very cocky way no governor i hear no bells the governor slowly starts walking towards campbell and says since yesterday morning he's been claiming that the murder was ordered by the british secret intelligence service campbell doesn't take him seriously and just laughs and says it's a little late to be coming up with nonsense like that don't you think As Campbell says this, he pulls a pipe out of his pocket and puts it in his mouth. The governor says he was told if he kept his mouth shut, there would be a last-minute pardon, which has not materialized. Campbell is completely unbothered by this and just lights his pipe. Campbell asks what business it is of his, meaning his own business, Campbell's business. The governor says he says the man who hired him was an intelligence service chief of staff. An ulsterman carries a cane with a wolf head handle, a bullet wound in his right leg. Does that sound familiar, y'all? Does that ring any bells for you? does for me. Campbell blows out the match he used to light his pipe and says, nope, still no bells. Campbell grabs his wolf head cane that he has leaned up against the wall and says, governor you have a very clear remit. A part of that remit is to oversee the smooth completion of executions sanctioned by the crown. And in the next four minutes, it is your duty to escort that man to the gates of hell. Is that clear? And if should you ever have the desire to discuss this matter with anyone else, I know where you live. As Campbell says this, he uses the end of his pipe that goes in his mouth and pushes it into the man's chest and it pushes him so hard that the man is pushed up against a brick wall the man looks scared and honestly you can just tell if looks could to kill Campbell would be dead this man is disgusted because he's being threatened number one number two you know he knows that Campbell is guilty and he knows that Campbell's going to get away with it Campbell is a very very bad man and that's just displayed in every single episode and again we hate him so much because he plays the role so well and the writing is just so incredible in the next scene we see arthur jumping rope at the boxing ring he is shirtless he is sweating his hair is astray and not brushed back like it normally is Mr. Marston, who is the owner of a boxing ring, is standing there smoking and Finn walks up to Arthur and tells him that Tommy has called a family meeting. Arthur doesn't stop jumping rope and Finn says again, Arthur. Mr. Marston says he just beat the shit out of an apprentice. I had to take half the kid away in buckets. When he said that line, y'all, it, That line is so chilling. Again, Arthur has not stopped jumping rope. And it actually appears that he has started jumping even higher and quicker. Finn calmly says, Arthur. And Arthur finally stops jumping. He's panting, his face looks intense, and he just says, 2,000. He walks over to a bucket and pulls out a sponge and wrings the sponge out over his hands and uses his wet hands to comb his hair back. He starts to walk out, and as he does, he just tells Finn, come on. We see all the Shelbys in a room for their family meeting. Arthur is sitting there looking refreshed and dressed in his nice clothes. His hair is combed back. He's sitting there touching his hands in a way that suggests that his knuckles might be tender, which would check out since he has obviously been doing a lot of fighting and literally just beat a man to death. Finn is pacing and John asks Polly, where the hell is Tommy? Polly calmly tells John that Tommy is on his way. Arthur says, all right, while we're waiting patiently. And then he goes and pulls a crate off the ground and places it on the table and says whiskey left over from the explosion i think it's also important to note that john's wife esme is also at this meeting she is sitting quietly on the stairs and um while this is happening polly just seems transfixed on watching the door to the bedding room she's just staring at it i think just like waiting for tommy to walk in john says right Before Tommy gets here, I think there's a few things we need to get straight between the rest of us. Polly says, you think? John says, yeah, yeah, I do. I want to know, when did we all take a vote on this expansion south? Polly starts walking towards John and says, you have anything to say? You wait for Thomas. Arthur says, Polly's effing right. John says he sees all the books, legal and off track, stuff the others don't see, and that in the past year, the Shelby Company Limited has been making £150 per day, sometimes more, and that he wants to know why they're changing things. John says, Polly, look what happened already. Haven't set foot in London yet. They've already blown up our effing pub. Arthur says, who said anything about cockneys? Esme says, who else? Polly says, you know who did it, do you? John tells Polly that Esme doesn't know who did it. Tommy walks in and Esme says, I'm told only family are allowed to speak. And Tommy tells her that everyone's allowed to speak. Tommy says, on your feet, Esme. Let's hear what you have to say. Esme looks through the staircase because, again, she's sitting, like actually sitting on the stairs, and John is like in the room actually and is kind of out of sight. And she kind of turns to look to him, almost like she's looking at him for his approval before she speaks, like getting his blessing. John clears his throat and starts to say that he speaks for their household. But Tommy cuts him off and says, John, this company is a modern enterprise and believes in equal rights for women. On your feet, Esme. I love this man. I love you, Tommy Shelby. Esme looks a little unsure, but she stands on the steps where she's been sitting. And I just thought this was interesting. And I I definitely noticed it because she stands on these steps which means she's physically elevated above everybody else in the room, which is obviously all men except for her and Polly. Esme says, I am not a blood member of this family, but perhaps indeed because I am not a member, I can see things in a different light. So I'll get to my point. Polly lights a cigarette and as she's doing so, she says that would be nice. Esme continues. As my husband said, Shelby Company Limited is now very successful. But London. I have kin in Shepherd's Bush and Portobello. It's more like wars between armies down there. And the coppers fight side by side with them. And there are foreigners of every description. And the use of bombs is the least of it. I have a child. Blessed with the Shelby family good looks. I want John to see him grow up. I want us to someday live somewhere with fresh air and trees and keep chickens or something. But London is just smoke and trouble, Thomas. Polly says, Thomas. Esme Foley has everybody's attention in the room. And she finishes up by saying, that's all I had to say. I really feel like everybody in that room knows that what Esme is saying is true in their heart of hearts they might dismiss it they might laugh they might never admit it but I do truly think that deep down they know what she's saying is true and that it's hitting them in a different way Arthur speaks and says that was a lot of words a lot of words wash them down with a nice drink and he grabs a drink off the table and hands it to Tommy who's standing behind him Tommy quickly finishes the drink and says, Thank you, Esme. Tommy says, Firstly, the bang in the pub had nothing to do with London. Understood? The bang is something I'm dealing with on my own. Secondly, we have nothing to fear from the proposed business business expansion, so as long as we stick together. After the first few weeks, nine-tenths of what we do in London will be legal. The other tenths is in good hands. Isn't that right, Arthur? Arthur says that's right Tommy continues some of you in this room have expressed your reservations fair enough any of you who want no part in the future of this company walk out the door right now go raise your chickens for those of you with ambition the expansion process begins tomorrow nobody leaves the room and we just see Arthur smirk and take a drink And the next scene, we see Polly and Tommy walk into what I'm going to call, I'm going to call it the cell. And y'all, I'm sure there is a proper name for what this is called. I don't know what it's actually referred to, but it's the place in the betting room, I guess, where, where bets are made and where the money is kept. And it's literally caged in like a jail cell, obviously to try to, you know, keep people away from their money, to act as a deterrent. Send me a DM if you know the name of it. I would truly love to know. Tommy is leading the way, and Polly says, tomorrow, I'm company treasurer. You should speak to me first. As Polly is saying this, Tommy is trying to open the safe. Polly says that tomorrow is New Market, which is the third busiest day of the year. Tommy assures Polly that he has 18 staff, and Polly asks him who he trusts with 200 quid takings tommy is still trying to open the safe and polly finally says oh i changed the combination as soon as she says this tommy looks exasperated and just leans on the safe polly says so what's going on thomas who did you meet at the black lion tommy is still leaning on the safe with his back facing polly as she's doing work at the table behind him in the books tommy just says give me the combination polly Polly doesn't acknowledge him and he turns and he gets on the other side of the table so that he's across from her. She's sitting there working and he just is standing and he places his hands down on the table. He leans over and just says, Polly, give me the combination. Polly once again does not acknowledge him and just keeps writing in the book. Tommy tells her that what happened to the pub is Irish business and that they're in a situation where for everyone's safety, it's best if some things remain undisclosed. Polly says, so why tomorrow? Tommy says, like you said, tomorrow is Newmarket. All the London bosses will be at the races. Polly says, and so you just roll up and take the city? Tommy says, no, we take the opportunity to show our hand. The Italian gangs and the Jewish gangs have been at war in London for six months. Polly tells him that it's not their war. And Tommy says, the Jewish people have been having the worst of it. They need allies. Polly says, yeah, but we don't. Tommy tells her that they need a foothold at the southern end of the Grand Union. The Jewish people control Camden Town. Polly gives Tommy this look that I can only best describe as genuine pity. It's like worry. She says, Your mother said it's his cleverness that'll kill him. Tommy tells her that no one's going to get killed. He says that they'll go down tomorrow when it's quiet and they'll leave their message. And if Alfie Solomons and his Camden boys come to them, they'll negotiate the use of a secure bonded warehouse And then their legal activities in London can begin. He then again asks her to please open the effing safe. Polly gives him a brief look and then quickly gets up and moves towards the safe. Polly says, do you know, it was a fine speech you made in there about this company believing in equal rights for women. But when it comes to it, you don't listen to a word we say. Maybe you don't trust us. She was one woman, Thomas. Maybe it's time you forgot about her. Tommy looks somber as Polly speaks these words. Tommy says, forgot about who? Tommy just hangs his head and Polly doesn't answer and turns around and finally unlocks the safe. But obviously we as the viewers know who she's talking about and that's Grace. Tommy quickly grabs what he needs and Polly says you and the boys go and get yourself killed you can tell that Polly is very bothered by Tommy's plan Tommy walks out and Polly slams the book closed very hard on the table out of anger this next scene y'all it is really it is really something it was actually really hard for me to watch So we see Tommy and he's having sex with somebody just straight up. That's what it is. I can't even joke and say make sweet love because that is that is not what is happening in this scene. At first, the person's face is not shown, but they're fully dressed. This sex scene is not at all intimate. It is the epitome of being transactional. It is a huge departure from the scene we see between Tommy and Grace. They finish and the woman pulls up her underwear and Tommy buttons his pants and starts putting his vest on over his button down shirt. And we realize that the woman he was just having sex with is none other than the sex worker Lizzie, who was going to marry Tommy's brother John how sick is this like like what a tangled web Lizzie asks him if he's going to London now and Tommy says no and that there's something he has to do first Lizzie is trying so hard to make conversation and she comments on the typewriter on Tommy's desk she tells him she has one like it and that she got it out of a catalog and that she's doing a correspondence course. Lizzie tells Tommy that she's learning to type with her eyes shut because it's a test that they have to do. As Lizzie is talking, y'all, there's no nice way to say it. It's just very sad, but Tommy has no interest in speaking to her. He's getting dressed, he's putting his vest on, he's putting his guns in his holster, but he's not responding to her about anything she's saying like nothing he's not speaking to her recreationally she asks him if he'll come back before he goes and he tells her no (sighs) y'all i'm serious this scene was so painful it's really sad because it's very obvious by the way that lizzie is with tommy in the previous episode and in this episode that Lizzie does not see Tommy as just another client you can tell that she has a very real attraction and affection for him it's so obvious Tommy pulls the cash out of his pocket and puts it on the desk and this moment is so tense he just looks at her and it's almost like a silent plea for her to just take the money Just so it can be over. This transaction, this interaction can be over. And that's what this is. Again, this is a transaction. There is nothing. I mean, she is a sex worker. She has satisfied him. She's getting her money. And that is all this is to Tommy. Lizzie waits a moment and she takes the money and says, I just wish just once you wouldn't pay me as if we were ordinary people tommy takes a beat and he calmly and quickly just says yeah and rushes out so sad we see polly walking alone it's nighttime and it's extremely foggy the camera angles are very interesting here she enters a building and it looks like almost like like it's being shot through like a fisheye angle y'all know what i mean like you know You'll know what I mean. Just look it up. Like a fisheye lens. The whole angle just kind of looks distorted. Polly enters the room and she's taking her coat off and her hat. And there are already four other people sitting around a small round table. The room is very dim and it has tons of candles in it. The energy in this scene is very heavy and serious. Polly sits down and the medium says, let's begin. Hands on the table. The medium continues and says, tonight we have two new pilgrims joining us. So let's welcome them. The medium smiles at Polly and then smiles at another. She says, starting with you. Who is it that you are seeking to reach? The woman responds and says that she's seeking her husband and that he was taken six months ago by the influenza. She also reveals that she already tried reaching him through Mrs. Breach at Spark Hill, but that she kept getting his middle name wrong. The medium tells the woman not to talk about Mrs. Breach in that house and that she is an unsanctified charlatan. At this point, Polly has not said a single word since the scene has started. The medium finally asks Polly who she seeks. Polly kind of stumbles in whenever she speaks, and she says, Truth is, sorry, the truth is, I'm not even sure she's dead, so I came to find out. See, my son and my daughter were taken from me when they were very small taken by the parish authorities, and I never knew what happened to them. But lately, I've had a feeling, like, a feeling. Can't put it into words. And I keep having a dream. I see a pretty girl, about 18 years old. She's standing across the street, and she tells me she's passed over. Now, my daughter would have been 18 this year, on May 15th. And this girl has dark eyes, like mine. And she shouts and shouts. And she tells me she wants to talk to me because I'm her mother. Now, I don't even know what name they gave her after they stole her from me. But if she does want a goodbye, I thought this would be the place. And then Polly wipes a tear from her face. The medium has a look on her face. She's smiling, but it's almost like it's half smile half pity this expression it's very it's very sad the medium notices that Polly is wearing the black Madonna she asks Polly if she is Romani and Polly responds and says the part of me that dreams is Romani the medium responds in the Romani language and says that she too is Romani and asks Polly her name Polly tells her that her maiden name is Shelby. And when she says this, everyone at the table definitely sits a little straighter as Polly says that. Polly says, perhaps you could do me first. So in the next scene, we're standing outside of the home that Polly is in and she rushes outside. She looks she's dressed she has her coat and her hat back on and she looks very upset and distressed she is crying and just keeps saying no and screams she is obviously in great despair so that leads us to believe even though we didn't hear what happened or see what happened that she probably wasn't just told something good And the next scene, we see Tommy standing in some kind of factory. He's smoking, and he seems to be hiding behind some crates. And we see this one man working, and Tommy is definitely watching this man. Tommy looks like an animal that is stalking his prey. We're watching this man work, and the camera lingers on him for a while, And Danny Boy by Johnny Cash starts playing. Tommy just continues smoking and calmly watching this man from afar. The man takes a break from working and walks over to a barrel and takes a drink. There are some other people there taking a drink and they walk away and Tommy is still watching him. We see Tommy approach the man and as the man turns around, Tommy says, A. Mondugan. The man just turns around and looks at Tommy, and he seems confused. The man doesn't try to run or make any move at all, really. He doesn't try to pull a weapon, doesn't try to fight. Then we see Tommy raise a gun and shoot this man point blank. Amon immediately falls to the ground, and he's dead. We see him on the ground, in a pool of blood quickly forms on the ground around his head it's very chilling to watch it's like makes you wonder what the motive was like this man didn't fight back he wasn't violent he didn't even say anything that was a very um interesting scene it almost like makes you have sympathy for that person but like again we don't know his history we don't know why tommy's there we don't know it was just a very interesting scene So we see a car driving in the next scene and we hear Arthur announce Tommy's here and Tommy pulls up and quickly exits the car and Arthur leans against it. Tommy screams John's name and John screams back that he's coming. Tommy lights a cigarette and Arthur pulls something out of his pocket and drinks it. Tommy just looks at him and Arthur says seven o'clock, 12 o'clock, 10 if i'm sober i got it from the doctor keeps me nice and calm as he says this tommy takes the bottle from his hand and takes the cork out and sniffs what's in the bottle tommy responds and says same thing they gave us in the trenches stops us effing wanking arthur says that polly says it's good for his temper and that it slows him down Tommy tells Arthur there are some things Polly doesn't understand and he proceeds to empty the bottle out on the street. Tommy tells Arthur that he needs him fast, not slow, and he throws the glass onto the street and we hear it shatter. John walks out of the house and says, she wouldn't let go of my effing leg. Arthur says, I bet that's not all she wouldn't let go of. John says, you know, she's against this, Tom. She's got opinions. Tommy tells John there's nothing wrong with opinions, and Arthur tells John to get in the effing car. John tells Arthur to shut up, and he gets in the car. It's just this brotherly banter. It's just one of those human, normal moments that we see between these Shelby brothers that are just always about business and always having to be ten steps ahead. So, the top to the car is down and arthur screams the peaky blinders are going on effing holiday john grabs arthur and says sit down you mad bastard and he puts his arm around his brother and they both start laughing it's kind of a sweet moment and the next scene i loved this scene we see polly sitting in a regular chair but like she's reclined back in it meaning like she's she's sitting there sloppily She's alone in the bedding room and she's smoking. We hear somebody else enter the house and she quickly sits up and hides a bottle of alcohol that she was just consuming. Polly definitely looks disheveled in this scene and quickly finishes the alcohol that's in her glass. We see Esme walk into the room and she sits at a table that's to Polly's right. She looks at Polly and says, "You're against this, the same as me, aren't you?" Polly responds and tells Esme to look out for anyone putting big money on Divine Star at the three thirty at Newmarket because she's one of theirs. Polly says, "If there's anything over a pound for Esme to tell her, she just completely ignores her question and <laughs> keeps going about the business." Esme walks over to Polly and says, Polly, I don't wish to pry into your business, but you should know something. That woman is a trickster. Polly is writing something down and asks, what woman? Esme says, her sister was in the wash house early, boasting there'd been a Shelby at the table. This catches Polly's attention, and Polly asks, what woman? Esme tells her that the Romani people talk to each other. Polly asks for a third time, what woman? Esme says, you went to see Mrs. Price in the patch last night. Then Esme puts her hand on Polly's shoulder and says, I'm sorry. No sooner than Esme gets these words out of her mouth, Polly jumps up from the table and slams Esme against the wall and asks her what she knows. I love this scene because it really is just strong woman against strong woman. Esme doesn't even look upset. She says, I know they push the glass. The man, it's her cousin. He pushes the glass. It's a trick. They tell you what you already believe. She's set up after the war because of all the widows. Polly, Polly, I just thought you should know. Polly still has Esme push up against the wall. And as soon as Esme stops talking, Esme gets even closer. They're just inches away from each other's faces. Polly asks, and in this effing wash house, did they tell you why I went there? Esme subtly nods yes. And Polly, this moment, y'all, it was such a batty moment. I literally had to rewind it like... 10 times because it happened so fast I had to figure out like that I knew what I was looking at at first I thought Polly pulled a switchblade out of Esme's pocket but no Polly very quickly lifts her right leg and pulls this switchblade out of her boot and just in an instant opens it and holds the blade to Esme's neck Esme again really does not flinch one single time And she's looking Polly directly in the eyes. Polly says, you tell a soul in this family and I swear I will cut you. So something about Polly is, number one, you don't mess with her. You don't ever try to make a fool out of her. And I don't know that she thinks that Esme was trying to do that. But the fact that Esme was telling her that, somebody else was trying to play a trick on her made her so mad and you definitely don't mess with her about anything regarding her children you never try to make a pull out a fool out of Polly Esme is still unwavering and says I don't need a knife to stop me telling secrets given in confidence it is a matter of honor their faces again are just inches apart and Esme barely like she barely pushes her face in Polly's direction it's like she just gets a little bit closer and this actually makes Polly flinch when I just thought that was so powerful Polly quickly takes the blade away from her neck and walks away and as she does this she puts the switch blade in her coat pocket So we see in the next scene uh, Tommy, Arthur, and John in a rural area and Arthur says, look at this, look I love it your Esme was right about one thing you can't beat the countryside He continues and says you know, I think I want to live in the country one day and keep chickens As we see more of this scene, it becomes obvious that the guys have pulled over to pee (laughs) and Tommy and John finish up before Arthur and they walk up to the car and John tells Arthur that they'll see him in London guess he's taking too long no sooner than John stops talking Tommy pulls back the tarp of the car and reveals the body of Amon Dugan John is taken by surprise by this sight and says for F's sake Tommy hands John and Arthur shovels and says that they have to bury him john asks who it is and tommy says it's irish business i thought it best if i deal with it on my own come on we did a thousand of these in france tommy motions and tells john to grab his head and arthur says so we're not really going to london tommy tells him that once they bury him the holiday begins what a downer imagine like thinking you're going on holiday and then your brother pulls over and is like oh wait but right quick we have to bury this body oh my god I'd be so annoyed so in the next scene we see a title card that says London and we see the Peaky Blinders Tommy Arthur and John walking at night the streets are bustling and we see them standing outside what looks like a nightclub and we see Tommy discreetly hand somebody at the front door some cash And this person looks nervous, but he lets them through anyway. Watching them walk into this club is honestly amazing, y'all. They have swagger. They are in formation. Tommy is at the head. There's a music playing. People are doing drugs. People are making out. People are having sex. Like you see all of this as they're walking into this club. Arthur says it's an effing freak show. They keep walking, and they make it to the dance floor. And the dance floor is full, and there is fast-paced jazz music playing. I love jazz music. Side note. And the Peaky Blinders walk through this dance floor to the seating area, and as they do, Arthur says, What the F is that racket? Tommy replies and says, This is what they call music these days, brother. Y'all, this club... For real for real is like the wild wild west. Anything goes. There is this couple and they are engaged in some sexual activity and Tommy just walks up to them and says, "Hey, hey, put it away." <laughs> and then I laughed so hard. John quickly like gets on their level, like leans over and gets on their level and just quickly interjects and screams in their face, "F off." <laughs> like why <laughs> Tommy already told them like to go to stop this couple runs away and tommy and john sit at the table where the couple was just sitting and john says effing look at this mess eh it's all right in here we see tommy yell to the waiter irish whiskey bottle and arthur quickly once again interjects just like john just did and tells the waiter to hurry up. And it's funny because it's like, I don't know, the, the waiter is moving so quick. It, the whole scene is pure chaos, okay? It's ridiculous. I You could watch it ten times and watch something new. The Peaky Blinders are looking around and making observations. John says that he recognizes a few of the men there. Arthur says, Sabini's cousin over there. Tommy says, that's right, Arthur it's Sabini's club. John says, Jesus Christ, everybody in here is an effing face. Tommy says, just the lieutenants, John, no sign of the officers. Oh, and by the way, so whenever Tommy says lieutenant on my, okay, y'all know I'm an anglophile, right? And so I have, I love everything British. And so a while back on my Instagram, it was so interesting. I found out that the Brits pronounce the word lieutenant as lieutenant and that's how Tommy says it in the show obviously because he's playing a British man so just the lieutenants John no sign of the officers there you go did that just for the Brits they get their bottle of whiskey and John starts to pour them all a shot and they are quickly approached by a man that comes over and says gentlemen there has been a mistake I'm afraid you're going to have to leave. You can tell this man is trained in hospitality, y'all. I know that fake smile. He kind of has his arms around the guys, like not actually draped over their shoulders, but like, you know, you'll know what I mean whenever you see the scene. He's smiling and he is definitely playing a part. He's trying to make this as amicable as possible. He just wants him out because of somebody else's request. John says, we just bought an effing bottle. The man says, some of the men here recognize you from the racetracks in the north. Arthur kind of smiles and says, yeah, we get that a lot. The man responds and says, they say you have no business coming south of the line without prior agreement. Tommy says, what line would that be, my friend? The man just looks at him for a minute and says, They say this is provocation. Tommy says, Right. Well, you tell them we are on holiday. Tommy takes a sip of his drink. The man laughs and says, You're breaking rules. They say you are the peaky blinders. As the man is saying this, there are two men at two separate tables watching this entire interaction. As soon as the man says this, someone throws a glass at Arthur and yells, Peaky scum. And it's at this point that the true chaos ensues. Like, we thought what happened on their way in was chaos. This is the real show. The Peaky Blinders immediately stand up and start swinging. The music is playing and people continue dancing even though this is happening. They are completely unfazed. Tommy pulls off his blade-filled hat and starts slicing people in the face. (laughs) It's like, I can't. Like, what is happening? Arthur is fighting a man and knocks him out. Arthur screams, who the F is next? We see all three of these men continue to fight. And again, it's just total, it's bedlam. It's crazy. And this goes on for a minute. And then the man who was asking them to leave the club shoots a shotgun into the ceiling the music finally stops and people finally stop dancing and go quiet the man points the gun to the peaky blinders and tells them to get out tommy is just fearless y'all he walks towards the man who again he has not been named this entire ta- time and says yeah yeah you gonna use that Even though the man is armed with a double-barrel shotgun, he still looks unsure and intimidated. Tommy says, didn't think so. Tommy grabs the whiskey bottle that he just ordered off the table, and Arthur puts a cigar in his mouth. The Peaky Blinders are definitely the center of attention at this point they have somehow that's their magic managed to to completely dominate this room tommy says we came here not to make enemies no we came here to make new friends as tommy is speaking we see john making eyes at a woman who's just standing there and he casually walks up to her and they kiss and it's like they're both into it like it's 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 wild this scene in t- is so wild from beginning to end. Then John just kisses her and continues walking and Arthur kicks a man that's already down and Tommy continues. Those of you who are last will soon be first and those of you who are downtrodden will rise up. Yep. You know where to find us. As they walk out, Arthur throws his cigar on the ground And Arthur just like jukes some guy Like you know like gets up in his face And acts like he's gonna hit him So now we see the Peaky Blinders Back out in the street They've left the club And Arthur screams in anger I think I lost a tooth I'll have none left at this rate Some effing holiday this is (laughs) Poor Arthur Oh my god he's falling apart The wheels are coming off Tommy slaps him on the back and says, yeah, you lost without your effing medicine now, Arthur, and hands him the bottle of whiskey and tells him that that will fix it. Even though we just witnessed this brutal, chaotic scene, these three guys look reinvigorated. They look rejuvenated. Tommy asks John how he is and then says, Or should I ask your effing wife? John says, give over. And Tommy says, no more talk of chickens. You hear me? Arthur takes a swig of the whiskey and says, F the chickens. (laughs) What? Not the chickens. (laughs) Leave them out of this. Tommy says, got 50 quid in my pocket. Let's paint the town, eh? This next scene, y'all, is so It's so strange. And the next scene, literally, we go from the pinky blinders walking and laughing to boom, there is a nude woman and she's obvious like she's sitting there. I think it looks like she's on like some kind of like chase lounge or something. Yep, just straight up nude. And she's posing. And at first we're like, wait, what's happening? And we hear a knock on the door and a man's voice says, Come. Major Campbell walks in with his cane and is startled by the sight that he sees. Churchill says, "'Good Lord, I assumed it was Betty with tea.' Campbell quickly turns around so that his back is facing Churchill and the nude woman. He says, "'Forgive me, sir, but your secretary was not at the desk.' Churchill says no because she takes a lunch like a normal person." You can turn around. This lady is a professional life model. She does this for a living. Campbell tells Churchill that he's more than happy to come back later. Churchill tells him no, that he's in the house later, and to just keep his back turned if he must. Churchill tells Campbell that he guesses that Campbell has not been exposed to Bohemian society. Campbell tells him that he plays cards on occasion. (laughs) Churchill says... You are a stranger to cocaine and exotic dancing, too, I would imagine. Campbell tells him that he finds the more obvious vices the easiest to resist. Honestly, same though. Like, my biggest vice is food. Like, y'all can keep the rest. So, Churchill asks him what business is so urgent that it trumps lunch. Campbell says, well, sir, our man in Birmingham has passed his first test with flying colors. Churchill isn't really taking in what Campbell is saying. and He just says he's horrible at faces. Campbell tells him that he thinks they can begin to prepare the man for the bigger task. Churchill is just talking about how bad he is at drawing faces and says that expressions elude him because he thinks too much. Campbell tells Churchill that he needs his authority to proceed with all urgency preparing the new man for the bigger task. Churchill responds and says, you're talking about your bookmaker. Campbell confirms that 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 is the case and Churchill says, you have a history with this man. Why did you choose him? Campbell says, well, to apply pressure on a man for this type of work, you have to know his weakness, and I know this man's weaknesses intimately. Churchill asks that they can trust the man to keep his mouth shut after the mission is accomplished. Campbell says, absolutely not, sir. So when he serves his purpose, he will be consigned to history in exactly the same manner I'm sorry, the same way as his predecessor. Churchill says, you mean at the end of a rope? Campbell says that the end of the rope has been this man's destiny since the night he was born. How sad is that? Like, like just some sacrificial lamb, like raised for slaughter. I don't know. It made me really sad. I don't know like he's like oh yeah like just to decide this man's fate that was wild and the next scene we see Tommy walking by himself and smoking one thing about Tommy is that he's always going to have a cigarette in his mouth or he's always going to be in the process of lighting a cigarette that is the one constant Lizzie is leaned over a desk, and she's just touching some papers when Tommy finally walks in. She tells him, you're early. Tommy tells her to shut her eyes. Lizzie is confused, and Tommy tells her again to shut her eyes. She shuts her eyes, and he leads her over to the typewriter. She sits down, and he covers her eyes with his hand. He tells her to type this. Quote, if winter comes, then can spring be far behind? Tommy checks her work to see how she did, and he notices that she left off a question mark and tells her to put one. You can tell that Lizzie is thoroughly enjoying this banter, this little interaction. It's kind of, kind of flirty. Tommy tells her, now type this, wanted, secretary for an expanding business. Lizzie kind of laughs and tells him to slow down, but Tommy continues. Must be able to take dictation and touch type five days a week, eight pounds and four shillings a month. Must be able to start immediately. Tommy lights his cigarette and Lizzie realizes that he's making her a job offer. She asks him if he's serious and Tommy says, things are starting to happen, Lizzie. I need someone who can look the other way sometimes. And you can stop the other work too, Lizzie. All of it this time. No exceptions. Lizzie nods her head yes, and she definitely looks emotional. She looks very touched. Tommy tells her 8 o'clock Monday morning, the upstairs office, don't be late. And he walks out. Lizzie sits at the typewriter, and she just looks so emotionally moved. In the next scene, we see Polly sitting at Tommy's desk holding a piece of paper. Tommy walks in and immediately says, New Market was profitable. Polly looks enraged and says, Arthur told me how you left your message. And when I asked him where his medicine was, he said, you poured it away. Tommy tells her that all he poured away was opium and bromide. Polly says, but that's how it works in London, isn't it? Every boss has a mad dog at his side. Yeah, somebody who can't be predicted. Somebody mad in the head. But Thomas Shelby uses his own brother. Tommy finally snaps puts his hands up and yells, stop effing fighting me. She tells him that somebody has to, and she slams something on the desk and says, that arrived an hour ago. There's no name on it, but it comes from Camden Town. I was going to burn it. I should have. Tommy grabs a piece of paper, and it's a telegram that says, let us break bread together. Polly continues, well done, Tommy. You picked a side. Now you're at a war with Sabini. And she walks out the door. We see Tommy walking out of the house. It's nighttime. It's pouring rain. And Tommy is just walking through the rain. He doesn't have an umbrella. He is just walking through. And it is clear that he's on a mission. So this is one of those scenes where we're going back and forth between two scenes, okay? Okay so we see tommy walking through the rain and then we see ada and she looks like she's at work and she's walking and a man is kind of running after her and he asks her if she's going for a drink ada says no the woman upstairs is looking after carl she goes mad if i'm late we see her continue walking down some stairs and there's a man at the end of the stairs reading a paper This catches Ada's attention and she looks immediately uneasy. And as a viewer, I was, I felt immediately uneasy. This, there was no way this was just some man standing there innocently reading a paper. She walks past him and starts going down another flight of stairs. And as she does this, two men are walking up that same flight of stairs towards her. We already know y'all. We're not dumb. We know something is about to happen. We can just tell. We can feel it. And then the man that she just walked by on the first flight of stairs is suddenly behind her. Which means he's physically above her. So she's literally standing between three men. Then we go back to Tommy, who is still walking in the rain. And he goes to get in the family car. And as soon as he reaches for the door, no sooner than he reaches for the door, does a man come out of the back seat with a gun pointed to tommy's face tommy is caught off guard and immediately puts his hands up and steps back then we're back to the scene with ada one of the men asks ada shelby she quickly responds and says no the man immediately hits her then we're back to tommy and he starts fighting the man with the gun immediately knocking him over Then another man comes out of the shadows and starts attacking Tommy. So it's two against one. Then we're back to the scene with Ada. And one of the men tells her, your brother broke the rules. She tells him she doesn't have a brother. The man says something terrifying to her. He says, me and my friends here need a bit of female company. Let's go for a drive. Ada yells and screams no. Like, I could feel her terror. Like, existing as a woman is scary I can't even imagine just like three against one so terrible we're back to the scene with Tommy and we see a third man join a fight then a fourth man joins and then a fifth man then we see Ada being dragged down the stairs by the men Tommy is being brutally attacked by five men he doesn't have a chance y'all when it's five against one I'm sorry you don't have a chance One of the men pulls Tommy up off the ground and is holding Tommy up. At this point, Tommy is down bad, y'all. He's in the trenches. And Tommy is literally hanging in his arms like a rag doll. One of the men grabs Tommy by the hair and pulls his head up. Sabini says, Tommy Shelby, I missed you in my club. I was at the races. Tommy can barely talk, but somehow mutters the word Sabini. Sabini tells him not to say his name. Sabini says, Franco, take my name out of his mouth. Oh God, this scene, it hurts me to even describe it. It hurts to watch it. This man, Franco, takes a blade to Tommy's mouth and just starts cutting. Like he's digging with a shovel. Like the knife is a shovel. Sabini says, while you're in there, do a bit of digging for gold. Pay for the petrol. They cut his cheek and pull out one of his teeth before punching him again. Tommy is picked back up and Sabini says, see how much I know about you? I even know what's in your effing mouth. Look at me. Look at me. You take up with these Jewish people. Yeah, you think that's what London is all about. You can just come down, pick a side, you effing clown. Now your life is over. My face is the last thing you'll ever see on earth. Your mistake. You remember that when you get to help. Finish him off. We immediately see an explosion, and then we hear a whistle, and Sabini and his men scatter. Tommy is left laying on the ground, bloodied. I mean, down bad, y'all, and unresponsive. Up walks Campbell. This guy, I swear to God, there's no getting rid of him. Up walks Campbell and some other men. Campbell says, I suppose we should see if the bastard's still alive. And we see Campbell looking down at Tommy as the coppers check on him, and he has a smirk on his face. And that concludes recapping episode seven. thank you so much for tuning into this episode of by the order i hope you tune in next time as i discuss episode eight if you would like to know where you can find me i am on instagram at the neighborhood hype girl come on over we would love to have you by the order is written hosted and edited by me the neighborhood hype girl thank you so much for listening i'll talk to you soon